Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. Coming soon on Reality Check Radio, the legal hub. This is where lawyers talk about legal things, range through the cases, the issues, the high profile, not so high profile. They might even take some of your questions, curly questions and queries. And Katie Ashby Coppins and Nick Kearney are the lawyers who will be occupying the legal hub. And I thought it'd be a good idea to catch up with them now on Reality Check Radio and have a chat to them. And to talk about the show, which is coming soon, it's like an onboarding process. Think of it uh, that way and uh, um, help you get to know them. So Katie and Nick, thanks for joining me this morning. Uh, I hope you're well. Thank you very much, Paul. Good to be here, Paul. You can say thank you as well, Nick. Thank you. Good to be here. (laughs) Okay. Um, You never know quite where people are because uh, this is audio, but we do have a video feed and you you look like you're sitting on a Hawaiian beach, but I know that you're not. I'm I'm sure you're not. You're probably in in the study or in the spare room. It's just my um, virtual background. I like it. I put it on to throw people off the scent. Yeah, well, it almost works. And Katie, that looks like a a real background there. It's not a projected thing. Nice bit of, uh, looks like fish type Mm. of artwork in the background. One of those swirling tunnels of fish. Okay, so what do we talk about? Um, First of all, I think people are going to be really interested in hearing about legal things. And uh, Katie, it would be fair to say, start with you, that the last few years have been, um, in the big picture, quite a challenging legal environment, right? Sort of landmines to step on everywhere, cases that that don't sort of turn out the way that you think they should, activism, um, justice. What, what, what would you say oh. about that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and one of the um, most surprising things is we have cornerstone principles um, of, you know, uh, uh, in the law that ordinarily applying those, uh, you would consider that you would have a good chance of success. Uh, But in the last few years, under the guise of COVID or the fear of COVID, um, you know, core fundamental principles have been brushed to one side um, for some sort of concept of greater good um, or, you know, response to fear. Nick, uh, I think we were talking before and you, you were saying that you can't remember a time like this, a, a legal kind of context type. And I have to agree with what um, Katie's comments were just, just prior. Uh, some of those principles that she talked about are absolutely fundamental to the rule of law, to the way um, you know uh, human rights are meant to be respected and upheld, to the way a civil society is meant to work, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they were all completely pretty much disregarded. Um, and, uh, you know, um, individual human rights uh, it were just well, we don't you didn't have any for a long time, you know. And um, uh, as Katie says, all, all for the supposed greater good. And of course, um, yeah, there was debate at the time as to whether, in fact, you know, what was being done was for indeed, you know, going to turn out to be for the greater good. And I think only history will will actually prove that ultimately. We've got a couple of um, cases coming up that you'll mention that sort of show show that in action. Let's start with at the business end. So, um, Nick, you're thinking about the Law Society review on the regulation of lawyers and lack of interest and input. I'm really surprised to see that. Explain that lack of interest and input from the legal profession. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, this this all started um, probably about five years ago. And 
uh, the Law Society decided that the current um, legal framework, which regulated lawyers, the Lawyers and Conveyances Act of, of 2006, so it's not that old, uh, was not fit for purpose and it needed a complete overhaul. Uh, and it, it started off with, if you remember, uh, the allegations that came out of some law firms uh, in, in Auckland, particularly, I think, a couple, um, you know, of, of bad behaviour, when I call it that, atrocious behaviour, really, mm. um, uh, of, of some senior lawyers vis-a-vis uh, -vis some junior female lawyers and what have you. And they, look, they were isolated cases and they happened a long, long time ago, but that led to a, well, hey, a review of our lawyers actually upholding, uh, you know, the rights that lawyers should uphold in the workplaces. So let's have a whole review and let's see if the legal framework that um, lawyers work under is fit for purpose. Well, you know, that that sort of can raise eyebrows in itself because you kind of think, well, hang on, these were isolated incidents in, in businesses. Um, yeah, sure, amongst the law fraternity, but surely the businesses themselves could have dealt with it on an employer-employee basis. Does it need a whole uh, review of the way lawyers are regulated to try and um, overcome that? Anyway, so that's what happened. And... Uh, you know, arising out of all that, we had an independent independent review panel uh, appointed. They've written a 192-page report on uh, overhauling overhauling the way lawyers uh, are regulated and and how we should work and what we should do and what we shouldn't, how we should behave and what we should, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but interestingly, you know, and that report was um, concluded about three three weeks ago or so. But during the process, uh, which went on for six to eight months um, last year, there was a lot of opportunity um, by the Law Society for lawyers to feed back into that report. Uh, there were, uh, you know, uh, Zoom meetings, Zoom, uh, you know, online meetings opportunities. There were person to person. There were, you could write written submissions and what have you. And um, there were, in New Zealand, there are 16,304 or 400 or so um practicing lawyers you might think that's an awful lot of lawyers but a, yeah i never knew that, that figure yeah okay. yeah it's well over sixteen thousand. um and i think i've got this number right i think there were 167 submissions <laughs> okay so it, it was it's one percent and it's very very discouraging that a profession that is meant to you know uh rely on due process and um and uphold, I guess, principles of you know making sure that educated decisions and, and informed decisions are being made, uh, particularly around the very profession in which is being you know regulated. Um, simply just don't don't bother to partake. And as a result, and you see, you know, and what's the common saying um, that you know um, if you don't partake in democracy, you, you'll lose it or something like that. And you know. We're kind of seeing that, I think, um, in terms of this this review. They've, they've actually recommended um, some very, um, what's the word? I would call them controversial, but some very big changes to the way not just lawyers are regulated and the, the discipline process, but uh, the, the things that lawyers should undertake as part of the everyday, day-to-day -day business. Um, and you know, I, I actually find it quite dispiriting that only 160-odd or 1% of the profession even bothered to um, take interest in it, to be honest. Is one of the recommendations people should take interest in reports? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. Mind you, uh, that, yeah. that might just be folk voting with their feet. I mean, you know, do they want to read that much? It's all common sense anyway, and we, we behave well, and we're not really interested, really. 
I've got, like I think Appleby's got a big a big part to play in it. Um, and I think uh, I think generally um, most uh, well, I think this this is proven now by the lack of response. But I think yeah. most most lawyers just turn up to work because it's a good job, good income. You know, um, take their pay, go home, and when can I retire? You know, without really understanding right. that fundamentally. Uh, if you go back over history, the role of lawyers is absolutely, particularly those at the independent bar, it's absolutely fundamental to the uh, uh, holding of the rule of law, to justice, to civil society, to the protection of human rights and, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I don't think, I think by and large, most lawyers just look at it as a uh, as a vocation, not really a profession, which is a bit sad. Right. Okay. Interesting. Hmm. All right. Uh, let's move on um, to another uh, issue and this will uh, resound with a few people, especially caught in emergency weather events and uh, judging the response, etc. And there's been a lot of talk about that lately. Emergency weather events. Um, there's a bill on that, and there's a bit of talk about that because um, are people saying it's kind of draconian? Yeah, I mean, so the, the the bill is called the Severe Weather Emergency Recovery legislation bill um, oh, and it okay. was it's dated 29 March 2023 uh, and um, you know it, it, like like any emergency it, it, it was the government's pushed it through in, in a, an emergency type process too and they they pretty much allowed for uh, for one day of, of public submissions uh, on the bill and the, you know I, I mean there's so much law gets passed these days and so much, you know, um, so much work done by government and parliament, it's pretty hard to keep up sometimes. Uh, but this kind of, I, I wasn't aware, obviously, of this bill being passed. Do I really take much interest in severe weather emergency recovery legislation bill? Probably not really. <laughs> uh, to be honest, you know, I've got better things to do with my day. But interestingly, the um, New Zealand initiative were quite uh, animated in respect of the the process, and they wrote a submission. Oh, the process, right. Yeah, the process, really. And they wrote a submission um, to the select committee, uh, and the the title of their submission was An Abhorrent Approach to Legislative Process. Um, so they that's how it was entitled. And, and the very last part, um, the, the submission was only one page. And the last um, the last paragraph, I think, summarises it quite, quite, quite well for your uh, listeners. Uh, we do not request an opportunity to provide an oral submission because the process is a disgrace. Okay, well, that's and, pretty clear, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and that's um, the New Zealand initiative, and the, the people may think that's just a right-wing think tank and that the government will criticise them for being a you know, a right-wing think tank or whatever, but they're a very, a, a very uh, much a powerhouse institution, you know, chaired by Oliver Hartwich, who himself yeah. is a very intelligent guy. We've uh, had him well, on this program. Yeah, well, well respected around the world, um, and that submission was written. And a by clear him. thinker, actually, quite, very, quite a clear thinker. Yeah. Very clear thinker, and very, and I've heard him speak a, a couple of times. Um, and Oliver is very, um, how can I put it? Objective, um, very objective, and very rational, and very philosophical and and reasonable in his thinking and his debate and his arguments and certainly not uh, a what would we call um, inverted commas an extremist by any sense no uh, and for him to write and for that organization to write something like that then I think you know there's something quite badly wrong with that bill and the way it was done okay so that implies that there's there's something or or, or 
aspects of that bill that the government knows could be very controversial, uh, could uh, generate pushback. So you you create a very narrow window to input into it. And Katie, wasn't there even changes in the way this thing's been written in the last few weeks? So even if you were sort of following it a couple of weeks ago, you might not be aware of the, the tweaks that have been made in the meantime. Am I getting that right? I think that is correct. The strange thing was, was when you went to click on the bill on the day um, that you could give submissions or the day that that was being considered by the select committee, um, you couldn't actually get access to the bill that they were actually referring or talking to Uh um, because there were so many errors uh, on the select committee, on the government's select committee website with this. Uh, So there, there is some um, questions and about, whether or not there were two versions of, of this bill floating about and the one that they then ultimately passed was different. Um, we saw this too in, in the COVID health um, response emergency legislation too. Very quick turnaround, space of a day, and it really is a, a misuse of the select committee process. Um, if they're looking at in, in, in including this um, legislation for severe weather, you know, the severe weather events in um uh, Hastings and uh, Napier, where it was, uh, where, where this is largely uh, come into being from, that was well over a month ago. Um, and I know people are still looking yes. at the recovery of side of things, but to do this bill and to allow the select commodity process for one day is just really quite incredible. Um, and it, it, it really is uh, undemocratic um, it, it, hmm. in do, its do entirety. We- do we know if there's an if there's actually a need for it? I mean, there've been plenty of disasters before, and people have sort of well, what's lacking, apart from their competent response, it would seem from reports um, that needs this um, legislation or this bill anyway, with such a narrow time window. And oh dear, technical problems! Can't get in. What is it? Four oh four error on the website, and mm, can't, quite, can't just what bad timing? Is that what that is? Oh, look, it could have been so popular that there were so many people trying to access the site. Who knows? Um, We know Nick wasn't trying to access the site, apparently. (laughs) You were were like hitting the mouse too too many times per minute or something, uh, Nick, and you were screwing up the server. I don't know. But the uh, Hansard yeah. was the Hansard link still also wasn't uh, oh. properly working to the to, to that particular um, bill or comments and Hansard that would be a separate comments. that that would be a separate connection um, route too probably wouldn't it to the Hansard presumably database? it's a it's a separate NRL link um, yeah. or URL link uh, which would take you to to that um, so just a lot of thing odd things happening um, look perhaps the IT guy it is happening so quickly the IT guy couldn't keep up. Yeah, well, the connection into his uh, his mother's uh, downstairs spare room is, you know, sometimes affected by rain fade and traffic. Okay. Um, so, oh, that's um, not too good, especially if the New Zealand Initiative is saying that. And the last subject that I have, um, Nick, in your column, and then we'll get to what Katie's been working on, is tikanga. And that is uh, Maori law, really, isn't it? Um, um, and uh, and what's happening uh, what, what into into what institutions? Uh, what's going on? What what is the tikanga seeking to to find in a, its home in? Yeah, <laughs> I laugh because um, uh, because it's not clear what it's seeking to find a home in because it's not clear what tikanga is. That's the number one oh, problem. Okay. Yeah, and so well, interesting. So yeah, tikanga is is, is Maori customary law. 
and um, it's creeping its way into the common law system now of New Zealand. And uh, it, it, I mean, it's been in uh, it's been in our common law. I think if you um, you know, this comes out of the Alice decision. You know, Peter Alice, who was the Christchurch um, crash guy. Um, you know, I read the appeal decision of the Supreme Court there late last year. And Tikanga was gone through, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit shortly about how it was introduced into that appeal, but uh, it's been around in, in the country for maybe 80, 90, 100 years. So it's not, it, you know, it's not a foreign um, thing by any stretch. Uh, certainly, you know, my practice, commercial and, and, and property, um, I can't say I've ever considered it, uh, <laughs> you know, as part of my advice to my clients uh, that I must consider Tikanga, but um, that what happened with Alice was, and this is you know why I find it interesting, is uh, Alice was uh, he was non-Maori, he was European, and prior to the appeal, uh, the Supreme Court decided that they wanted to hear submissions on Tikanga in respect. His appeal, um, his appeal point was: could a person basically be um, acquitted, I suppose, or posthumously acquitted, even though he died, uh, because you know criminal law is you know, it's relevant to the person who's living. He died, mm. and could could the appeal continue posthumously uh, once he passed or once he died? And that was the point. Well, um, the Supreme Court, in a preparatory court hearing before the main appeal, said, "Oh, well, we actually want to hear about what Tikanga's got to say about this." Now that came completely out of the blue. Like everyone just thought, "Well, how the hell is Tikanga relevant to this?" And what they did is they wanted. Um, they got uh, Maori experts and elders in to give their view. They got interveners, which are you know are legal organisations, to come in and join the appeal to give their submissions um, on that issue as well. Uh, and the way it transpired essentially was that um, the Supreme Court has decided that you know uh, Tikanga now uh, is well ensconced into New Zealand common law. It needs to be. Um, but it can't, of course, you can't really describe um, if you were to sit here, Paul, and ask me what exactly what is Tikanga, even the experts in the Supreme Court uh, from the iwi, uh, the Maori experts, uh, could not describe exactly what Tikanga is. It's just a Maori way of doing things. And that differs from each tribe to tribe, each uh, iwi and hapu to hapu, uh, et cetera. And, you know, so the Tikanga of uh, what um, Ngāti Tūwhiritawa uh, um, does is completely different to what the Tikanga of Naitahu down in the South Island, you see. So, uh, and what why it's interesting from a legal perspective is one of the, you know, as Katie was talking about before, uh, one of the fundamental principles of the law is that it needs to be clear and certain. Uh, and if you've got a branch of the common law where, and as I say, even the, the, the Maori experts who appeared in the Supreme Court said, uh, we can't exactly define what tikanga is, but it's roughly these sorts of things. But uh, this is only um, inter alia, you know, and there are other things that it might be as well. But it just depends on just depends on what the circumstances and where you are and what the tribe in the Iwi Hapu is. But it's kind of these things, right? So if uh, you know, as I say, uh, as, that's all well and good, and you might, you know, might be good on an academic level. Um, but when you're trying to run a legal system, a common law legal system based on the rule of law, principles of law, having that sort of, um, in my view, having those sorts of concepts as a legal structure, um, they pose a huge risk, you know, huge risk. And even now, um, you know, and I pay close attention to the publications that come out from the various um, law society and the courts and what have you. And um, 
there are certainly now more arguments being put forward at Supreme Court level that tikanga tikanga is relevant for certain things uh, at at Supreme Court, and most of the uh, ones I've seen, the Supreme Court said, no, 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 not relevant here, no, no, not relevant here. But it is it is now a thing, if that's the way to put it, which is, um, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting. And my, look, my, my personal view on this is, um, and I don't think this is a radical view by any stretch, but I just think this actually has to happen um, for the protection, if you want to call it that, of the rule of law in the country, is I think there has to be legislation, actually, to um, define exactly uh, you know, we've, we've got no real, we haven't got legislation that defines what the principles of Treaty Whiting is. It's kind of loosely come out of a case, um, you know, and now we've got a loose kind of um, structure around potentially what tikanga is as well. I think we need a lot more certainty around these areas, um, to be honest. Mm, interesting that the the top court would allow that sort of um, vague wiggle room into their precise processes potentially. Yeah, it's um, yeah. It, as I say, for you know, it, it, and I'm not the only one to 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 think this. I know Stephen Franks wrote an article on it. I think when the decision was 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 made uh, or, or issued, um, but the way in which it came about with uh, uh, you know a um, just a conference hearing beforehand saying actually we think this might be relevant. So will you yeah. please give us some some submissions on this? When you know Alice has been going on for 22 years and was never ever raised in any of the previous court hearings. But the interesting thing, again, that this raises is that Alice uh, was, was non-Māori. Alice was a European Pākehā New Zealander. I think he had Scottish descent, actually. Hmm. Uh, and, that, and so it brings into question as well the fact that, well, can a non, non-Māori European introduce Māori concepts into their legal arguments? And if, if tikanga is a Māori customary law based on iwi and hapu, and, and particularly they're all different, depending on where that even hapu is in the country, um, how does that relate to a European Pākehā who has never belonged to an iwi or hapu? Gosh, it's, it's mind-bending. Uh, it, it's astonishing, yeah, when you think of the ramifications, yeah. Yeah. Wow, okay, well, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, and, and I was just thinking, as Nick was explaining that, Katie, that it's, there's sort of similarities in the self-ID bill. It's like you can just sort of decide to be something very imprecise and everybody says okay all right yeah we can do that and that's it's kind of the thing about this bill too you know you can well it's 50 dollars and um from june and you can go and change your sex actual sex on the paperwork Mm, mm, that's that's correct so um you're absolutely right 15th of june uh 2023 uh by way of statutory declaration you can um file with uh, uh you can file and you can um change your sex from male to female or male to female uh, sorry or female to male um there is no non-binary option um uh, at present uh and it is simply with a stroke of a pen you can uh, request to do so uh, the thing that interests me is the i guess that's the what what uh, legacy descriptor on these forms but uh, it's actually the sex you can change. Correct. And I always understood sex to be the biological chromosome chromosome configuration uh, description of, you know, the biology of, of a gender. But here um, we're, 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 we're talking more gender. And as you say, no non-binary category, it's, it's, it's not accurate to say uh, 
that you're changing your sex, is it? Look, that's the, um, as I understand it, that's what all of the um, the documents I've read say is it's the sex, cha- yeah. uh, it's the change from male to female, the, the, the sex specification, not, not gender. Um, yeah. I haven't worked through the application for myself um, uh, to, to see and haven't actually also looked at a, re- a recent birth certificate, but I'm sure it says uh, sex female on my birth certificate um, uh, when I was born. But I could now uh, apply to change that with uh, by completing a statutory declaration. Yeah. And and then change it back, presumably. I, at this stage, there's nothing in the um, uh, birth, deaths and uh, marriages legislation to suggest that you couldn't uh, change it back. It seems to be uh, at your whim, I guess, um, and, and completing the necessary documents and application fee. Okay. Um, more that. concerningly, too, is the... Um, the ability for um, uh, younger people to 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 do to change their um, sex. Oh, so, what's the age that that can be done? Uh, well, guardians will be able to apply for younger children with the support um, of a suitably qualified third party. Uh, so, sixteen and seventeen year olds will be able to apply um, with either gen- uh, either guardian consent um, or with the uh, support of a suitably qualified third party uh, and. Uh, that could uh, be who the would a suitably qualified third party be? Look, perhaps a psychologist that is seeing an um, activist psychologist. I I, I wouldn't um, know. I would suspect that they all have their responsibilities. Um, yes, but there are profession. some who are more enthusiastic than others and, and can, you know, promote these things. I know I've actually seen it. So um, that can be um, the energy that pushes along. The process, you know, uh, regardless, maybe even of the parent. Look, and there are some pretty significant comments um, by very vocal uh, uh, transgender people that have said, and, and it, until it was suggested to me, I didn't realise that I wanted to change. Um, right. And it was suggested by perhaps a suitably qualified um, person. So uh, at this stage, it doesn't appear to be defined in the Act as to who is suitably qualified, um, third party. Uh, I would be concerned if it was a teacher. Um, I wouldn't suspect that they would be suitably qualified. Uh, but look, who knows? It's 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 well, we, has it we, come we in we yet? We can speculate about that. Actually, you're right to mention that because the anecdotal evidence coming out of schools is that um, there's a lot of positive um, uh, reinforcement of fluid gender um, conditions. And it seems to be that these things are promoted. They're talked about. Certainly there, there are um, uh, road trips going around schools talking about this and presenting this information. And uh, teachers seem to be accommodating it on the whole. So, yeah, it could be a teacher. Look, it could. And until um, we start getting um, uh, a few of these going through. But the other the other question is it will only take – the only way that you'll probably expose – a discussion around a suitably qualified third party is perhaps if a parent ends up taking a case saying, I didn't win my 16-year-old's uh, sex change on their birth certificate, and yet you took it upon yourself to do so without our consent. So again, mm. it's just that erosion of that that, that, that guardianship, that family, that uh, family decisions, decisions being at the core of the family. Um, it's, um, 
you know, it, it, it's a bit of a wait and see. But I think people will be genuinely surprised that you can change your uh, sex on your uh, birth certificate relatively easily and for a cost of less than changing your name. Yeah, it's cheaper than changing your name. How is that possible? Oh. Less admin? Okay. Look, I don't know. Maybe less less buttons to push. Um, look, I don't know. I don't know. It's is just, it the it, same guy who does the, you know, the website for the, for oh. the submissions on the bill? <laughs> look, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But the, And then you can change it back and then you can change it back again, presumably. There's no limit to how many times you can... Um, you know, switch to the other sex. No, no, there's not. Um, not, not, not stated in the uh, legislation. No, there's not. Um, and presumably, if they've let you change it one way, um, there, what, what would be the bar to changing it back? Is that the best word to use? <laughs> well, it depends on which way you're going. Uh, but yeah, I, because I feel like I want to. Look, and and that's that's. That is it. There's an all-female all music festival coming up next month, and I want to go. That's correct. Yeah, okay. There's a mums, uh, there's a mums and bubs day at the pool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to go. Oh, dear. Paul, can, well, you could enter Miss Universe. Is that again? You could enter Miss Universe. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've got to plan I, it. I've got to coordinate the dates, though, because... I wouldn't want to get a day out and, and, and not and be disqualified. Sorry, Katie. Uh, Touche. Uh, look, I do have to say that this isn't as if New Zealand is leading the way on on these oh, changes. Okay. Well, there are plenty of other countries that are, um, are, are are doing so. I think Denmark was the first European um, country to do so, but I think that New Zealand might be about the twenty fourth or so okay. to follow yeah. suit in this way. So it's not as if we're we're trailblazing. Um, well, at least we're in the top 50. Um, are the other um, um, jurisdictions, nations, are they using the sex uh, classification as well? Do we know? Or are, they, are some of them saying gender? I'm just, just curious. Do we know? Look, it looked um, from my review that it was sex. I think there was only one or two of the nations that had included a third category. Um, but again, it looked like it was um, it, it referenced sex, but I'd have to come back to you on that. Um, There's a bit of work to do. You've got 25 other countries to look up, so that's correct. Want... And some um, and a crash course in a few languages. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, sex and gender. Yeah. Okay. Now, what about this OIA response from the Ministry of Health? When I saw this, well, my blood's already been boiling on this whole issue, but here it goes again. Tell us what this response reveals. So this is a particularly interesting um, response. Uh, the question was asked about whether or not um, the ministry uh, received or requested or was provided legal advice um, about legal or fiscal, so monetary risks arising from the safety signals uh, mm. to the uh, COVID-19 vaccines. And the response was there was none. And that is really quite incredible. Um, that the ministry has not provided legal advice about legal or fiscal risks arising from safety signals um, to vaccinations. The public employers, responsible ministers of COVID-19 communications team. And so that really is quite incredible. Um, it seems like that would have been one of the um, first and foremost things that you were considering as you were 
um, bulldozing um, these products onto people, uh, making laws to do so, talking about mandates, um, even at the time that the products were just being considered for provisional consent, um, which is a special type of consent, not the ordinary consent that your um, uh, pharmaceuticals ordinarily get. Um, so it just, it, it shouldn't, it, it beggars belief, but uh, it's not It's not really surprising given that. Dis- you know, yeah, depressingly not surprising. Depressing, concerningly not surprising. Yeah, concerning. um, yeah. Like this is very key important things that you would consider that would be requested, sought, box ticked. Can you believe this is just overlooking something? No. No, I, I struggle to believe that it's just overlooking something. Can I just add another dimension into it? Yeah, go. And I can't recall the exact date, but we know that Grant Robertson, um, on behalf of the government and the people of New Zealand, signed uh, an indemnity um, in favour of Pfizer for any repercussions arising out of the vaccine, the community vaccine. Community vaccine. So, um, you know, Pfizer could never, ever, ever be held responsible for any damage that it caused with this vaccine. Now, if any party uh, in a contractual relationship uh, signs a guarantee or an indemnity like that, it should only do so with full knowledge of the background circumstances. Uh, you know, how, how could you possibly say, for example, Paul, if I say to you, Paul, uh, will you guarantee uh, my loans to uh, to my bank, to BNZ or ASB or something? please, uh, you're going to say, well, I want to know what your income is. I want to know where your money's coming from, how you, how you can repay it, et cetera, et cetera. This is standard basic stuff around any kind of indemnity or guarantee. Um, you need to know what the original party, the borrower in that instance, is where the situation is. Well, here the government had an absolute duty when it signed an indemnity to know uh, what it was in for um, in the worst-case scenario, and we just now know it had no idea. Mm. Correct. Yeah. And look, that, that that and look, I know that there is a a, a, um, a group of people that have requested on OIA, which is Official Information Act, um, requests to the government copies of the uh, Pfizer contracts. Uh, there are plenty of other countries Pfizer contracts floating around, uh, which do talk about um, the indemnity, um, and. Um, at this point in time, even the ombudsman has uh, refused uh, to uh, allow the release of of the contracts, which is quite incredible given well, why would New Zealand be? is... Um, look, I think the... Uh, m- numerous reasons given for um, refusing it. Um, I can bring up the document that I received earlier today on refusing, um, I think it's even limited to just the indemnity provision um, of the contract. Yes, so um, the Ministry of Health uh, refused uh, to release the information uh, on the uh, Pfizer agreement, uh, citing um, Section uh, 92B2 of the Official Information Act, Mm. and um, claimed that its release would likely unreasonably prejudice the commercial position of the person who supplied the information. So that's a protection to Pfizer, a commercial protection to Pfizer, 
um, and releasing this information, which is about the purchaser's acknowledgement and indemnity, uh, would um, uh, potentially damage their commercial position. Now, that's pretty incredible because this contract was entered into for a uh, and on behalf of supposedly the New Zealand public um, at large. So the fact that Pfizer is getting a protection uh, much greater than um, the people of New Zealand and that indemnity is given by the New Zealand government in favour of uh, Pfizer's liability against a claim by someone from New Zealand just seems to um, seems to be almost around the wrong way. Um, and we certainly had this in the kids' case in New Zealand. The Pfizer um, uh, contract was only allowed to be reviewed by the uh, lawyers um, under an indemnity. They, were, they wouldn't release it, and there was broad discussions about it. But Pfizer were at the back of the courtroom, even though they weren't party to the case, they were given a chair at the table um, and regularly leaped to their feet um, any time they went near the contract. Uh, so they obviously have something they don't want um, uh, openly publish. How how come the New Zealand government then would be so accommodating to them, more accommodating to them than they are to their own citizens? Do we know? I mean, I know we don't know, but you got to ask that, right? You'd have to. You really would. Um, and you know, and we perhaps, pay for it. You're right. We pay for it. <laughs> I think I think that um, reflecting on that question, Paul, I think everyone would probably um, uh, come to the same opinion themselves without it even being said. Hmm. The, the government values Pfizer ahead of every citizen. Mm, that's correct. That's correct. At least we know. <clears throat> At least we know now. <laughs> hmm. And look, there's plenty of copies of the other countries' contracts out. They appear very similar. The indemnities appear very, appear very similar. The um, purchase acknowledgements very similar. Um, you know, no long term, no insider. So they've got effects. nothing to hide, really. If if ours is similar, so why are they why are they doggedly hanging on? Is there some special clause for New Zealand? Oh, I can't imagine so. Um, um, look, I don't know. You must get to 95%. That's probably what's in there. That's correct. I mean, look, if it's been it's been done now, hasn't it? Um, you know, I, I can't understand why there is this dogged determination to hold on to the contracts um still now, two years, three years on since um or two years on since they were signed. Um the guy who knows it all is the Prime Minister now. Look, and he was all over it. He's the one that's telling us it's safe and effective, um, and you know his, or you know, that ministry was, or he was closely associated with the ministry that signed the documents um, that gave these indemnities, knowing full well that no long-term um, effects or efficacy of the vaccine were known. And as he walks around in Lower Hut, um, and people are smiling, he knows that, and we I don't would imagine. I would imagine. Okay, it's pretty grim. All right, and um, to finish up, and it's, what a great chat it's been, by the way. Um, to finish up, this is going to be a good show. Legal Hub is going to be a great show. You're never going to run out of things to talk to uh, talk we about. We really okay. won't. Yeah, <laughs> it's never going to be dull. No, that's right. There's always something going on or something crazy. Uh, okay, and uh, any other um, cases that that should be mentioned now and that you might be 
um, you know, alluding to, touching on in uh, in episodes going forward? Yeah, no trouble. Uh, so uh, recently in the um, in a case I was supporting in the High Court of Australia, um, which was uh, a judicial review uh, of the Moderna um, or the TGA's approval of the Moderna vaccines for the babies, um, we took an application to the High Court, the highest court in um, Australia, uh, and uh, the High Court declined to uh, even look at the case on the basis that they said that the task would unduly divert the High Court um, from its principal functions. And so they sent the case back to the federal court. Um, we'd already been in the federal court uh, last year for the children and so um, don't perceive that we will uh, get uh, anywhere further uh, in the federal court. So it's 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 really quite incredible. Um, the High Court um, in Australia has indicated its same uh, or similar intentions as the High Court in New Zealand did that, um, you know, uh, those most vulnerable to in our society, the children, the ones that need to look um, be looked after, the ones that uh, really don't need these products, um, it's not going to come to their aid or, or protection. So um, I guess it comes down to what we started at the beginning of this uh, hub chat, which is, you know, fundamental principles are lost. And I think that comes down to the fact that we no longer have a, 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 a judiciary that is independent of the government. And it's always intended to be um, independent from the government so that it can keep that balance in check on government. Um, so, you know, when government goes wayward, um, the courts can bring them back. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing a very political um, uh, judiciary uh, and one that's not um, coming to the table of a lot of these cases, which are breaches of core fundamental legal principles that we used to be re able to reliably advise our clients on. Um, and now, you know, we can't necessarily um, do so with all that certainty and particularly with Tikaia coming in, um, you know, how do you advise on a, and give prospects on a case when you don't even know what the law is? Mm. Um, but look, there is always a glimmer of hope. We've got um, the New Zealand um, teachers speaking out with science. Their appeal is in the Court of Appeal uh, later this month. Um, it, you know, there's always glimmers of hope, and um, they are uh, th their case is about the um, the mandates of the teachers. So um, we wish them the best of luck, and we'll be eagerly watching uh, and following their their progress. Right. Okay, so what I've heard um, a couple of times from both of you is this sort of um, activism and politicization of, of well, maybe not the whole judiciary, but aspects of it, right? Um, parts of it have become political. And here's the question. Do the people in it realize they've become political and that they're letting these principles go? The ones that they signed up for and trained for and they're, they're dedicated to, do they actually know that this has happened to them? Very, very oh. good question. Sorry. You know, very, very good question. Um, uh, well, and probably impossible to answer. You'd yeah, I know get, it is. You'd, yeah, have, you'd, have to get, you'd have to get the judges on to, to ask them that, and they won't appear, obviously. But um, I, I, would, I would hazard a guess and say potentially no. I would say they actually genuinely believe they're doing the right thing. Uh, by advancing society in the way that you know it, it should be advanced, and using their position as a as a judge to do so, and um, and look, the law the law 
always is is fluid. So the, the only thing constant in life is change, and that also applies to the law. There's, it's always changing. There's always case law coming out that reverses another decision or takes a, a case or a branch of law into a different area that no one really envisaged, you know? So um, it's that's not a novel thing, and it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, well, I think, you know, what, we are, what we've seen uh, over the last two or three or four years is very, very rapid change in some of these legal principles. Not incremental, but extremely rapid, which is which is a concerning thing. Because mm. as a as a as a you know as a citizen who uh, and we're all citizens falling under the law, uh, you know we have to we have to obey it and and follow it and watch it and, and you know and watch it. But we have to obey it. And we have to follow it. Um, that's part of living in a, in, a, in a civil society. Otherwise, you have anarchy. And um, all of a sudden, the stuff that you thought was uh, acceptable as a human being living in a society governed by a rule of law system, bang, flip the fingers, it's changed on a dime. And it's quite hard to accept in a way. Any final comments, Katie? Look, um, I have, having now been involved in uh, three or four of the cases that have been brought to court, I think that there are a couple of components. I think that there's complete buy-in to um, the fear. Uh, and also it's pretty confronting when you're appearing in court and you're trying to convince a judge that some of this is pretty incredible information that you're passing on to them and pretty shocking and it can be pretty hard to believe. Um, and there's also an inherent trust in, in, in the government and naturally they're should be, you know, they are your elected officials um, that are there to do um, what is best uh, for you. And that inherent trust, I think, is one that they probably apply in in, in making these decisions because um, it's pretty unfathomable to think of it being anything else or as bad as what is being suggested. So you've got this 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 fear on both sides of, um, you know, this is the worst pandemic in the world um, or the world has ever seen in the last 100 years versus surely what you're telling me about these products and about um, the risks and things, um, you know, are, are, are even worse. So it's, it's I think, really something difficult to comprehend and it's, it's, it's yeah, it's incomprehensible in in a lot of ways. So I think that that's um, a big part and driver of the decisions. Um, I'm sure uh, that uh, promotions are all, also an element of consideration. And you know, our high court um, is located uh, right across the road from the government. So you know, they get to work walk out um, of chambers each day and um, stare at the beehive. So I think that that's also um, something else. Um, yeah. to consider. It's fascinating. So just, just one more comment, if I could, Paul. So, yeah. um, and, and just a kind of a natural, maybe not an extension, but a, a very good example on of how the, the fear has manifested itself into um, decision-making at judiciary level is, uh, you know, four or five days ago, I saw a, a newspaper headline that said that Billy Tikahaka uh, Tikahika, or Billy T, I don't know. is it Billy Tikahika? Yeah, I, I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he organised a protest during COVID and he rang the police and said, look, I know I'm not meant to, uh, but, you know, I, I think it's important we do this for democracy and I'm, I'm organising a protest outside TV and dead buildings, so 
just warning you, you know, we'll try and stand two metres apart and whatever, whatever. Anyway, uh, legal protest, he got arrested uh, and just last week was sentenced to four months in jail. Yes, I know about that. I should have mentioned that before. Yeah. Yeah. And then I noticed that, you know, that I just read about that in the paper. And two days later, on the front page of the very same newspaper in New Zealand, I read you the Herald headline Family outraged as woman gets home detention for killing a man who hadn't showered. How the hell? So you organise a protest, uphold your civil rights, you go to jail. Yeah. You kill a man who hasn't showered, you get home deep. Now, how do you comprehend that? I can't, yeah. really. Not, yeah. That's a program in itself, that one. Well, if I, if I led you into something, maybe that's the next one we do, yeah. We can talk about that. But that, that is so disproportionate, unfair, um, and it punches you in the guts on, on exercising any human rights it's a deterrent, in fact, isn't it, to that? Quite extraordinary. Though, and Bill, though, Bill, though, though yeah. kill a guy in a wheelchair or whatever, you know, mm, home D, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and well. what if, so, so, you know, so Billy T, as I say, according to the to the article, actually rang the police and told them what he was going to do. He doing. tried to do the right thing. Tried to do the right thing. Imagine if this lady here had rung the police and said, my husband's not taking a shower, I'm just about to kill him. Is that yeah. okay? Please come around. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's clown world stuff. I got to say, and I don't even like that term, but it applies. All right, um, interesting chat. I think it's going to be a really interesting show, actually. And uh, I th- I'm pre- I'm predicting when you do it, the replays will go through the roof as well because there'll be good information in that. Thank you for making a bit of time to come in and chat about this um, uh, this morning. And I know it's the intention you'll start talking about things, but then I have a feeling it'll morph into people getting interested in particular cases and you'll you'll bring things up and people will be curious. They want to know. They want to throw curly questions at you. That'll be okay, won't it, going forward for folk? Right? Look, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I think it is going to be quite fluid. Um, while, we're, while, we're, while at the moment we probably feel like we've got um, a, a, an avalanche of things that we can talk about because things are happening at such um, hyperspeed. Yeah. Um, there's the keeping people aware of things, but, you know, there's also people that have got very real issues that might not have come to our attention and would be um, uh, well within their, um, op- well, it would be well within their um, yeah. and opportunity it's always interesting to take to hear. A- you know, people mm. have such a varied range of, of, uh, of things going on that you never know what you're going to get. So mm, thanks so much for uh, coming on, talking about the show, Legal Hub. I look forward to hearing the first episode. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Katie Thank Ashby Coppins and Nick Kearney. Thank you. Yep. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye bye. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.